Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need when you need it with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. It's the tuning in to a deeper level of understanding about what's going on that then allows you to get past it. Because if you're just like, I'm mad about Slack, you're not really all the way there yet. Uh, But to be like, well... What am I losing? Oh, I'm losing my sense of mastery at work. (laughs) Yeah, well, that makes sense. I'd be mad too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Rodney Evans, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Aaron Dignan. Hey, hey, hey. We are also joined by Molly West Duffy, the co-author of No Hard Feelings, The Secret Power of Embracing Emotion at Work. Molly was previously an organizational design lead at global innovation firm IDEO and a research associate for the Dean of Harvard Business School. Her new book, co-authored with Liz Fosslein, is called Big Feelings, How to Be Okay When Things Are Not Okay. Molly, welcome to the show. Hi, thanks for having me. On today's episode, we're going to talk about cultivating self-awareness around some of our biggest and most difficult emotions. But before we play with that, let's play with a check-in round. So for today's check-in round, I was thinking, let's just go right on the nose and focus on a question of what is your favorite feelings word and why? Because we've been playing with feelings literacy a lot at work, and it's nice to have a big palette. So I'm going to start with Actually, I'm going to start with you, Molly, because you're you're the expert, and so it'll e- it'll come more easily for you. And then we'll go Rodney, and then me. Ooh, I love this. Also, I just love that you do check-ins. I love that that's a part of the podcast. <laughs> oh, one of my favorite feelings. I, you know, on the on the more positive side, I I love the word bliss. <laughs> mm. um, I just like the way it sounds to say as well. Nice. Rodney, what about you? I am going to go simple. I really like mad and sad because (laughs) I feel like those words get obscured and abstracted a lot. And if more of us could just be like, I am sad because or I am angry because the world would be a less confusing and easier place to navigate. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah, back to basics is a good one. I think for me, the word I've been using as a feeling lately that I have been enjoying is electric or electricity to talk about like how I'm feeling on my skin when I hear an idea or something really clicks that we've been working hard to think about and 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 figure out. So I would say, yeah, I, I'm feeling electric or I'm feeling some electricity in my body. Nice. Nice. Yeah. So today's topic, apropos... <laughs> is making room for big feelings. And I'd like to start by asking you, Molly, what are big feelings and what makes a feeling a big feeling? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so 
the, the, the title of the book is called Big Feelings. And the way we define it is a difficult emotion. So it's something that can feel overwhelming to us. Traditionally, these may have been labeled as negative emotions. Mm-hmm. The book, we talk about how we learned through writing the book not to label emotions as positive or negative, but to just say they they are how we are feeling and therefore what can we learn from them. So each chapter of the book covers one big feeling or difficult emotion, uncertainty, despair, anger, perfectionism, comparison, regret, and dives into how to work through them. I, some of those words are familiar to me. Um, the the first sentence of the book reads, this book almost didn't happen, which in the lexicon of like first sentences of books is a pretty pretty solid and, and uh, intriguing intro. Why didn't it happen? And then what changed or what shifted? Yeah, so we pitched the book or the idea for the book to our editor in January 2020. And actually, Perfect timing. Yes. Um, <laughs> and actually, Aaron and I share the same, or we used to share the same editor. And, and we we love working with her and with the, the imprint in general. But they said, well, we don't really think there's going to be a big enough audience that wants to read about difficult emotions. <laughs> <laughs> so we said, okay, Amazing. okay. And then in June, after the pandemic started, they called us back and they said, actually, we'll buy that book because all that anyone's <laughs> having right now is difficult emotions. And in we've been doing a lot of book talks since the, the book comes out soon. And, you know, it's funny. I think there's something in the air, although it must have been in the air like two years ago, which is when we started you know, writing the book. But um, Susan Cain's new book just came right. out, which is mm-hmm. all about melancholy and sorrow. It's called Bittersweet. And Dan Pink just wrote a book about regret. So it, it's interesting. you know. And Brene Brown had her new book. So there's a lot of books coming out around this time about, I would say, difficult emotions. And some of them must have been you know, started to be written before the pandemic. So the timeline is, is very interesting to me. So in this book, which is is really beautiful, you and Liz write about some very private and frankly, pretty wrenching experiences. Why did it feel to you like the right time to share those stories with the world? Well, we had just written a book called No Hard Feelings. And then we were like, actually, there are some really hard feelings. So maybe we should be open about those things. Yeah, Liz and I both went through difficult times uh, after the book came out, which we talk about in the book. And I think both of us were searching for resources about how to move through these difficult emotions or wanting to feel less alone in dealing with them. And there, you know, there have been some books written about them, but we were just like voraciously trying to find more. And Mm -hmm. so we started talking about, well, what would a book look like and, and what would we want to cover in it? And I think we both didn't know how personal we would get with it when we started. We said we want to we want to write a book about how to move through difficult emotions, and we'll reach out to our newsletter and our um, audience to get their stories and talk to experts and all of that. And and as the book went on, we thought it was more and more important to include our own stories as well in it, which I think is you know it's hard to share these things. We're both <laughs> introverts, pretty private people, but I think it's all in the spirit of making other people feel less alone and removing some of the the shame around it. Totally, and that's what we all need right now. I mean, as I was just like going to take a glance at it 
And then I just got really pulled in and really like emotionally connected to, you know, each paragraph. And I was reading it on my phone sideways, like curled up. It was definitely powerful. So I think it's, you know, it's something to be proud of because I think it opens up a lot of space for others. The part of the book that I think is interesting is you have seven big feelings and we know that publishers love to have, you know, feng shui numbers of things. (laughs) Um, How did you, how did you arrive at those seven feelings? What, you know, what are they and, and why them, right? There are so many feelings that we could choose from. How did you get there? Absolutely. Yeah. And and some of them are overlapping too. And that's, you know, we're all human and, and <laughs> we often don't have just one single emotion at a time. So we we started thinking about what are the, the things that we feel like we could add something new to. So there's like grief, for example, we chose not to write about because I actually think there are a lot of incredible books out there about grief that have come out in the last couple of years. And mm-hmm. so we did like a sidebar on grief. Shame as another example, like Brene Brown really like, wrote the book on she shame. I don't, <laughs> I don't think we had anything new to add to that, but we did feel like we had some new things to add. And so uncertainty, I mentioned something obviously we're all dealing with right now, burnout, anger, regret, despair, comparison, and perfectionism. And in choosing the titles, we tried to go with the word that would most resonate with people. So People are like, well, comparison's not an emotion. That's true. Envy is the emotion, but people relate mm-hmm. to this, you know, idea of comparison. And burnout is not an emotion, and that's true. And burnout is usually exhaustion, overwhelm, um, disconnection. But people relate to the idea of burnout. I I am curious about the timing of this. So so you wrote that these emotions are particularly salient to the modern world, which is like, woof. Uh, <laughs> feels very true, but also kind of bleak. What What is it about this moment that, that makes these particular feelings um, or descriptors feel so current? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think there's two things. One is that, you know, we're living in a time of of deep uncertainty, more so than I've experienced in my lifetime. I'm, I'm not going to say more so. Everyone's like, this is the greatest uh, uncertainty that the human race has ever experienced. Like, that's <laughs> definitely not true. <laughs> but, you know, in recent memory, for sure. And then I do think, you know, we can get into a whole separate conversation about capitalism, late capitalism, all of the things. But I think the structural forces are against us right now in terms of getting the support that we need, whether that's at work or home, from our government institutions, you know, all the things. And and then on the other hand, there's this idea of like, you should be able to work through these things on your own by just meditating and drinking your matcha latte. And, um, right. and so we blame ourselves for, and, and that again, contributes to the shame. It's like, I shouldn't be feeling this. I should be able to snap out of it. And these are not emotions that you can just snap out of. No kidding. Totally. In the, in the particular school of coaching that I'm trained in that is called dirty suffering. So mm, like regular that. suffering is something that is just part of human existence and transformation and all of the things. But dirty suffering is the shame of suffering. And that part of it feels um, so intractable sometimes. So I really appreciate you naming that. Mm, I like that, Ronnie. So perhaps related to what you were just scratching at, but in the beginning of the book, we noticed you're outlining different promises to readers. And one of them was that you won't trivialize the impact of structural forces. So what was that promise all about? And and what did it mean to you 
and Liz. Yeah. So in, in chapters like burnout and uncertainty, there's this, I feel like we've been talking about burnout for so long. So it's going to say like, there's this long-term debate. Are you, burned out? Are you burned out on burnout? <laughs> yeah. Like for the past three years, when we've been talking about burnout, there's this debate around, should it be on the individual or should it be on the group or team or organization right. or society to prevent burnout? And I think a lot of the language that's used is put it on the individual. And that really doesn't allow for structural forces in terms of institutional racism, sexism, the way that society has different expectations of people. And definitely like, you know, capitalism, you have to show up and make a living. And that's getting harder and harder to do. And so it's like a lot of the clickbait articles around burnout are, are much more about the things that you have to do as an individual. And Again, I think it it goes back to like, so then that's going to make someone feel bad and blame themselves that they're not doing a good enough job when really we're, we put many people in impossible positions and of course they're going to get burnt out. Same thing for uncertainty. You know, there's talk about being resilient around all of the changes that are happening and, you know, we're sort of like, well, a lot of that uncertainty is due to things that are beyond the individual's control and, and our structural mm-hmm. in nature. And so we don't want to trivialize those things. That makes sense. That's awesome. And also, I think really important to hear, like as a reader, you know, <laughs> both to our conversation before about, about dirty suffering, but also there's so much culturally around like productivity hacking and like uh. how do, how you're just going to like optimize your way out of what are intractable systemic interactions. Like you're not just going to task organize your way out of hundreds of years of systemic oppression. So I, again, <laughs> I appreciate the call out. Speaking of myth busting, every chapter of your book begins with some kind of myth busting around a specific feeling. So for example, with burnout, you tackle the myth that like burnout is obvious. And with mm-hmm. anger, you tackle the myth that venting makes you feel better. Why kick off each ch- chapter like that? And then also, I want to hear a little bit more about the venting one specifically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. Because venting sometimes does make us feel better. Oh, um, good. Oh. But it only feels good for a minute. Um, yeah, so I think this is like sort of in the middle, the muddy middle of the writing process, which I know Aaron knows well when you're like, okay, I have all these Woof. ideas, but how am I going to structure these chapters? And you're going back and forth with your editor and... I think we had initially thought about structuring it more just around like themes. So, you know, in the burnout, sort of going through the themes. And we realized that we were, before we wrote about the sort of what can you do about it, it was like, well, here's actually what you shouldn't do about it, even though that may feel like the immediate thing to do. And so we said, oh, we're, mm. that makes sense to structure just as the big myths to cover. Because, like I said, I mean, there's so, there's so much conversation about all of these things that, I think we can't get to the the good stuff until we sort of say, actually, some of these things aren't helpful. And even if people know that on a like intuitive level, it's also just sometimes help to to name. And then for venting, yeah. So there's really interesting research about, you know, venting can be helpful, but it also can be problematic when you rehash the same problem without trying to understand or solve the problem. And it can also make the people listening to you feel worse. We've all been I'm sure you've been on. (laughs) Vented too. Vented too. And sometimes it's like, yeah, me too. And sometimes you're like, 
okay, we're having the same conversation again. And, you know, instead using that time to focus on what's the deeper problem here and how can I take action on it? I love so that. I am curious what the overarching myth might be that, that kind of sums up all these feelings. Is there any universal belief or, or misunderstanding that you felt like tied them all together when you were able to step back and look at the book as a whole? Yeah. So we wrote the introduction after we wrote all the chapters and we talk about three pervasive myths in the introduction that are true across all the chapters. So the first is what I mentioned up front, which is we have this idea that big feelings are negative. And that's because men Mm -hmm. from a young age, many of us are taught that feeling bad is bad. And if we feel anger, Sometimes our parents said to us, don't feel bad. Yeah. Don't feel bad. You know, like distract you like, Oh, let's go get, you know, a treat. And, and, and again, this is socialized, especially for, for women or people identifying as women that anger is not really an acceptable way to show emotion. So there's good research that shows when, when women are feeling anger or frustration, they cry or have some sort of form of sadness or remove themselves from the situation. Whereas men, again, People who identify as men take that out through anger, Mm. but they're not bad or good. They are just feelings. And that's a big thing that we learn from some of the therapists and psychologists who we talk to. It's like, yes, they're uncomfortable. And at times they can even be unbearable, but they aren't inherently positive or negative. And when we take the time to understand them, even things like anger and regret can actually serve us. There was another that we found that was like, you know, again, touch on this earlier that you should just be strong enough to think your way out of difficult emotions. So that's like, Mm. um, I hate to throw a whole school of thought under the bus, but positive psychology has this sort of like ideological flavor to it. That's like, as an individual, you should be able to think differently. And that's not always true. And then the last is that your feelings are more intense and volatile than other people's feelings. And many of us feel like, Oh my God, like, you know, I'm the only one who has felt this much despair or this much envy. And we did a mm. survey of our readers and like everyone, 99% of people said that they had struggled with one of these big feelings over the past month. And the thing is, we don't always talk about them. Yeah, totally. This is a random tangent, but do you know why some feelings have been popularly labeled as positive versus negative? <laughs> I don't know the answer to that question. That's a really okay, good I don't question. either. I was just wondering, because uh, when you said that, it really landed with me that it's like, we do assign a lot of judgment to various types of feelings. And I wonder, I mean, I, like, I think it's easy to understand levels of comfort around them. But it is interesting to me to understand why is it that we've decided that like, sadness or anger is bad, and joy is good. I don't know. I was just curious if you had any takes on that. It, it also varies culturally. So in other mm, cultures, totally. you know, and, and again, we talked about Susan Cain's new book, which is about melancholy. I mean, melancholy is an emotion that that's what I should have picked for my favorite word at the top. That's um, mm. so <laughs> underused, but that that's like valued in other cultures. Um, yeah. And in the US, we we barely even know what that word means. So I think there's something to do with American society as well. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Just relentless optimism. Mm-hmm. Only do what feels good. 
this is this is what I'm most excited to to, to yes. dig into. You've worked with lots of different companies to help them develop good workplace cultures, and we too are on a similar quest to make organizations more adaptive and more human. How does talking about big feelings, in particular, help us build a more meaningful future of work? How does it maybe show up at work? How does it change what's possible at work? And can we even really reach that? state without leveling up our feelings game Mm -hmm. and feelings literacy anyway? So it's such a great question. And you all do great work around this. So when I first entered the workplace, I felt like I needed to be professional. And in my mind, that meant that I didn't show any emotion. (laughs) And I think this (laughs) has changed. So, you know, that was in the sort of last part of the aughts decades. And so we're, you know, 15 years out from that at this point, but I think there's still some remnants of that. And then when you actually have been at work for a while, you're like, well, I'm still human and I still have all these emotions, but I have no idea what to do with them. And there's no space to talk about them. And I don't know when they're helpful or not helpful. And so one of the big things, and I know your group does a lot of, you know, trainings and and facilitation around this is simply creating the space to talk about them because (laughs) we, you know, one of my favorite mantras is things that can happen at any time happen at no time. So it's Mm. like, well, you know, I could have this difficult conversation or I could share how I'm feeling about this, but there's not a time to do that. And so I'm going to not do it. And, Mm -hmm. And it does feel awkward because we have never been trained on how to do that. I think more now than in the past, there's some emotional fluency education that's given in especially K through 12 environments. And I do feel like Gen Z has more emotional fluency than I'm, I'm a millennial. So our generation did even, but I still think that the sort of final frontier is the workplace. So I think we're much better about talking about it with our friends, families, therapists, online, you know, in movies, all of these things. It's it's somewhat more acceptable now. But the workplace, and you would probably know more about this than I would, but I, you know, I think we're still dealing with the workplace structure as being something that was designed by and for white men who society expected to not show emotion. And, you know, I'm not going to blame white men. I just think it's it's part of how they were socialized. And so then when the workforce was designed around them, that was part of it. And I think it's just going to take a while to for things to evolve. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. No, I, I, I what's funny is what resonated most with me about what you were just saying is how different the generational patterns are becoming because I have a nine-year-old who came home from school last week and was like, oh, I had a conflict with a friend of mine. And we're like, oh, how did that go? And, and he's like, well, you know, we went to the peace table and started to exchange our needs and his needs weren't being met. And we, we found a way to like get both of our needs met and, and, and then went back to play. And it was like, yeah, when I was a kid, that was like 10 million miles away from what would have happened yeah. in that situation. Okay, that, that's amazing. Yeah, I, yeah I there's love so that much story. there. And like in the midst of the story, he's like throwing around proper pronouns for kids. I mean, the whole thing was just like completely next level compared to my crap. (laughs) So I do have a lot of hope. I do. I do have a lot of hope in, in what could come. Yeah. And I think that in terms of talking about feelings in the workplace, you know, a lot of the work that we do in companies, a lot of times we talk about doing transformation in the work rather than trying to change things separate from the work. Mm -hmm. And I feel like the same should be applied to 
working with feelings. Feelings are data. Feelings are information. Feelings are patterns. Like feelings are an emergent property from our interactions with our environments. And so I think if we try to create like separate containers that are only about feeling processing, like that might be an an, an important start for creating like literacy and comfort. But what I'm really interested in the longer term is how do feelings become just as important and just as integral to how we run companies as like a PL or an innovative idea or any other sort of like meme of import inside of a knowledge system. Yeah. I, I, I think that's really interesting the way that you made that comparison and similarly on like the meta level, you know, a lot of the facilitation work that I know you all do and and I've done in the past, it's like, can we use these moments of redesigning a meeting or thinking about how teams are better communicating to, to not only like do that on a tactical level, but also shift the mindset and norms in which we are relating to each other as humans. And it's yeah. like a little bit of a Trojan horse way in because if you were to come into a company, <laughs> you know, traditional Fortune 500 company and say, so we're here to help you relate better as humans. You know, I, I think now maybe people would be more open to that, but certainly historically people would be like, okay, well, what's the bottom line? Um, right. But, but ultimately like, when you're in the facilitation role, you see that there's a million ways to run a meeting. (laughs) And actually the deeper change is like making these things more human and helping people do that. And the same thing for like, you know, we can teach people how to deal with conflict as, as the example you gave with your son. And then as conflict comes up, it's like, you know, actually we can welcome that conflict because this is a moment mm-hmm. to practice what we have just learned. And so it, yeah. it, it makes these things that feel really overwhelming, like conflict and breaks it down and says like, okay, actually there's, there's some skills that we can use in this. Totally. And going back to the point you were making before about feelings having sort of value assigned to them. I feel like because we're proponents of self-management and that's the kind of work that we do in our company and out in the world, to me, like the killer app of emotional work in self-management is just understanding when you're having a reaction. It's Mm. like, even if you don't have the ability to make a lot of space between like trigger and reaction, if you are just able to notice that, that that is happening for you and ideally to say out loud, like, I am having a reaction to this. Just just those kinds of small moves really start to change the game, I think, in terms of workplace culture. So I feel like there's just like there's a lot of work to do in this area because um, we're we're lacking in skills, I think, <laughs> broadly. So one of the things I really wanted to ask you about, Molly, you quote organizational psychologist Laura Gallagher at one point, and you wrote, we don't resist change, we resist loss which really like landed for me. A lot of the work that we do is really about helping people let go of power, of control, of maybe some of their own like attachments. How do we make some room for the letting go, the grieving of what we're letting go, even if that's not something we're used to doing? Where, Like Mm. what have you seen work well? Well, I think what you just said, so often when we were writing this book, one of the things we realized is that behind 
some emotions lies a deeper emotion. So behind this like fear of change is often this fear of loss and, and grieving. Mm-hmm. But, but that's not like what comes to the surface level or what we're aware of. So when we're dealing with organizational change, you know, even something small, like I remember when I was at IDEO, we started using Slack for the first time and mm-hmm. people were very, very <laughs> upset about this. And it yeah. took me a while to figure out why. And I was like, oh, well, because they've been using email for decades. Sure. Entire adult life has been about using email and they're afraid of losing how they know how to do their work best. And when we think about it like that and name, like, yeah, that makes total sense that, you know, they're not afraid of, of like, you know, starting a new technology or that sort of thing, but they're afraid of losing their habits and their patterns. Then that allows people to better understand why they're reacting so strongly. And then, as you said, like, just, understand that reaction and and make space for it. And that quote that you mentioned from Dr. Laura Gallagher, who's great, by the way, and she she's worked with NASA and a bunch of other really great organizations and came up in the context of talking about anxiety and that anxiety is easier to deal with when you translate it into more specific fears. And then once you know what those specific fears are, you can pinpoint, you know, what you're afraid of losing and, and how you might be able to avoid some of those circumstances. I love that. It does seem like, to your point, uh, to both of your points, really, like it's the tuning in to a deeper level of understanding about what's going on that then allows you to get past it. Because if you're just like, I'm mad about Slack, you're not really all the way there yet. Uh, but to be like, well, what am I losing? Oh, I'm losing my sense of mastery at work. <laughs> okay, well, that makes sense. I, I'd be mad too. And then and then, what can I do with that? Like, what am I willing to do? Or, or how do I want to engage with that feeling now that I understand it better? In the book, you, you actually quote writer Anne Lamott saying, you didn't come onto this earth as a perfectionist or a control freak. I, I may beg to differ. Um, you weren't <laughs> born a person of cringe and contraction. You learned contraction to survive. So it really speaks to that early experience. If this allergy or distaste is learned, how do we unlearn it besides picking up a copy of your book, which they should do anyway? Thank you. That's a hard question, Aaron. I um, I <laughs> will try my best to answer it. That's a, that's a toughie. So I, I'm speaking as somebody who likes to have a lot of control. I love Anne Lamott for that reason. She has another quote that's like, sometimes I just need to like, get my sticky fingers off of the steering wheel. <laughs> I'm like, yeah. that is how I feel a lot of the time. It's hard Minor to let go of that steering it. steering wheel. And so this, this comes up in our chapter on perfectionism, which talks about how many people stay with their perfectionist tendencies because they believe that those tendencies are serving them. And in some Mm -hmm. ways they probably are. So I don't think we can say (laughs) like, well, your perfectionism and your need for control has gotten you totally nowhere in life. I'm sure it has been helpful, but it's helpful up to a point. And we were just talking about this the other day with with someone else um, in an event where we were saying like, you know, if you get to 90%, usually that's good enough. And that actually in, especially in a workplace context, sometimes it's going to be 
to the detriment of the team if you're like, no, I have to take this from 90% to 100%. And that that's sort of a like your ego being like, I need to feel good about this rather than understanding like for the team, maybe good enough is good enough. And like, you're going to spend way too long optimizing when actually you could be doing something else, you know, that's more helpful to the team. So understanding when, you know, past its point of helpful, of usefulness. The other thing we talked with a therapist who said a lot of her more type A clients have this feeling that if they let go of their perfectionist tendencies, they will immediately get fired, become a couch potato, like Mm -hmm. lose all their friends. (laughs) It's like, it's like this black and white thinking of like, if I go a hundred percent, I can keep all of the you know plates in the air. And if I stop going a hundred percent, they're all going to come crashing down to the ground, which that is the thing that I think we have to let go of. Totally. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that from clients and, and friends of like, well, you know, if I take my foot off the gas, everything will implode. And it's like, how likely <laughs> is that really? based on the data that you have about yourself. But it feels very feels very true in the moment when someone is asking you to change your way of showing up. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I really wanted to ask you about, because we've waded a bit into workplace culture, and, and because we live in the realm of ways of working and practices in workplaces, if you could see a handful of changes adopted by workplaces writ large that would make them more feelings capable. Mm -hmm. What kinds of things would you love to see companies adopt? Ooh, great question. So uh, training managers to give people reasonable workloads. Um, Mm. Oh, smart. I've even seen some of your team members share things about this on LinkedIn and other places, but I mean, that's where we have to start with burnout. You know, as much as you take breaks in the middle of the day and give people a week off and, you know, all the things that people are doing, like, that's not a sustainable or day-to-day solution. So training people to give people reasonable workloads, and if that means you need to hire more people to make those more reasonable workloads, so be it. Um, And then also making finding balance a collective practice. So we interviewed this woman, who, Amy Bonsall, who I, I worked with at IDEO, who started a consulting firm around flourishing at work. And so bringing like mindfulness practices into the workplace. And she tells this story of when she was at IDEO, she was working out of the IDEO Singapore office, and they were doing research for a big company about how to bring like creativity into their culture. And they went and stayed in an island off the coast of Singapore where there's a more traditional way of living. Um, So people go there like to do modern work, you know, to do remote work, but they live in a collective environment. So they cook their meals together, they do meditation together, and the people there love it. And it's like they realize that they can still do their work, but that mm-hmm. like what has changed is their environment and they're less likely to get burnt out because of their environment. And so what she learned from that was, and she came back to the US after that. And again, she saw like all these people trying to say like, okay, well have your Apple watch tell you when to meditate. And like, <laughs> she was like, no, that's, that's not what it's about. So nice. how can you as a team build in some of these collective practices? So starting with a check-in round as you started this podcast with starting meetings five minutes late. We've and many organizations try to, you know, schedule 25 minute meetings. We find that it's more helpful to do that when you start at like 1105 rather than try to end five minutes early because 
you know you can go over and collectively take lunches or put time on the calendar when you're not going to have meetings. Like that's that's really a big way to, to make change. In terms of dealing with uncertainty in the workplace, so one of the things we talk about is separating the withins from the beyond. So what's within your control, what's beyond your control. And for the things that are beyond your control, and this goes back to um, Dr. Laura Gallagher, and this is when she was working at NASA. And she said that even at NASA, they do something called making a plan from which you will deviate. And I know mm. that already, I'm sure, That's have awesome. similar language. <laughs> but the, the benefit of, of making a plan is actually the act of coming together, getting aligned, setting, here's the behaviors we're going to use as a team, and here's you know our goals moving forward. But that we must know now after COVID and everything that's happening in the world, like, of course, the plan is going to change. Um, but we cling to the plan and we feel bad if we don't meet the plan. And so it's trying to relieve some of the anxiety that comes from, oh, we, we're not sticking to the plan. Well, you can, you can adapt the plan. And then the last thing I would say is this idea of making space to talk about emotions at work. I mentioned earlier. So what can that look like? Well, what a lot of teams find helpful is to schedule moments to talk about these things, beginning, middle, and end of a project, and having some facilitated conversations. So it can be helpful to have someone who's not on the team in the room for this to check in about actual work. So what are the agreements we're setting? What are the roles, the norms, all of that? But also, how are we feeling about how this project is going and making it okay to share, like, I'm frustrated about how this project is going, but mm -hmm. to do that in a space that feels safe and where productive things can come out of it. That's I so cool. Those. those are great. Everybody go do those, all of those yeah. things. <laughs> I was going to try to call back to my favorites and then I was like, no, nah. the list is getting too no, long. they're all bangers. <laughs> So I guess I, w I actually want to do something a little unconventional for the podcast, which is I want all three of us to check out on this question. Hmm. So the question is, fill in the blank. If we made room for bigger feelings at work, we'd have less or more of what? So we'll start with maybe Rodney, then me, and then Molly, you can bring it home. Great. Lawsuits. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I'm going to say more uh, laughter. Mm, I love that. I would say less burnout and turnover. So there you go. Some some promises uh, for a future with bigger feelings at work. Seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So Molly, where can our listeners find out more about you and your work and this book? Yes. Yeah, so you can find us on our website. It's Liz and Molly, and that's Molly with an I-E, M-O-L-L-I-E.com on Instagram at Liz and Molly. The book is called <laughs> Big Feelings, and it is out April 26th. Amazing. Molly, thank you so much for joining us today. This was a total blast. Thank you. This was delightful. I'm so glad I got to talk to both of you. Awesome. And for our listeners out there, if you love what you're hearing, please do leave us a review. We would love that. Or forward our show to someone who needs it. Maybe someone who needs to unpack and explore their big, their big feelings. I'm thinking maybe there's room for some big feelings on TikTok. Um, a quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. Get in touch with us and share your feelings by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.